First Timothy chapter two. First Timothy chapter two. Reminded again this morning and have been reminded this week of what it's like to pastor this church and the way that we do things here different than other places. Um, uh, when you pastor a small church, spring break hits you hard. Amen. Like you can tell when people are missing. We have uh, many families out this week uh, that are on trips. Um, but you know, when you um, I had a chance this past week to visit with uh, three individuals who were quizzing me over the Bible and what sin is, they had grown up in the church and uh, they were no longer attending on regular basis, and um, I'm reminded how important it is to teach God's Word. It's not hip. Um, I find that after pastoring before and now pastoring here, um, that some churches, it seems, spends more time coming up with their sermon titles for their series than they do in actually uh, getting ready to preach. Um, and when I occasionally, Lucas will show me all the titles of the sermons being preached in the city, uh, and ours are never as cool as everybody else's. Um, but I am reminded um, when I visit with individuals like I had the privilege to visit with this past week of why you teach the Word of God. Because I grew up in a hip church that was cool and said all the neat things, and yet it bared. It bore no fruit in their life. And so that's why, as a reminder, we do it every year in January. I'm just a quick reminder again. That is why we work our way through books of the Bible. Uh, it is difficult for me then to avoid difficult subjects or things that are hard to understand or things uh, that might cause discomfort in the church. But if you're hip and you're cool, you can design a sermon series around that stuff and you don't have to address it. We are not that fortunate as a church and as a church that has elders who lead it. If I were to attempt to do such a thing, I would probably be uh, disciplined and maybe terminated. And so we're going to preach difficult passages. And 1 Timothy chapter 2 and as we move into chapter 3 are going to be difficult passages for us. Not necessarily because the word itself is difficult, but because we are sinful people and we are people who do not like to be told what to do. And that is going to be very evident today and in the coming weeks as we say things like, I know that's what the Bible says, but... Just remember the word but at the end of that sentence immediately moves you into sin. What the Word of God says is the Word of God. And our response is to submit ourselves to it. So, with that introduction, with everybody anticipating what's going to be said, let's tackle the beginning of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. Paul's letter, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, to his young protege and the pastor in Ephesus, the church that Paul helped plant, he writes this, I desire then 
But in every place, the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. If you're a lady here and you have braided hair, you're in trouble. No, I'm just kidding. It's not true. This is an interesting passage as Paul has shifted somewhat from um, reminding Timothy what is sound doctrine, uh, and now he is shifting into roles within the church and gender roles. Now, this may come as a surprise to us today, but let me remind you, um, women and men are different. And you were born that way, despite what society may tell you. Now, if you grew up in a good old Baptist church in um, the wonderful South, uh, I have no doubt there have been women who have been mistreated by pastors. I have no doubt that there, you have sat under preaching uh, that has had an agenda that was not glorifying God. And yet I also know that for many women in our culture today, uh, they are being bombarded with messages that are not godly. And how do we find out our gender roles within the local church? And how do we see what the Word of God says? And the only way I know to do that is to preach the Word of God and to call ourselves, including myself, um, to submit to it. And that's what we're going to do this morning. So in verse 8, you see this. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. And I plan to address that particular verse next week uh, when it comes to the rest of chapter 2. But you can clearly see a command for how godly men. This is not a Greek word for men and women. This is a Greek word for men, specifically men, should behave, praying, lifting holy hands with no anger or quarreling. That does not mean that women cannot lift their hands and cannot pray and that they should have anger and quarreling. That's not what it means. There is a very specific instruction to the men there because they're different than women. And women are different than men. But in verse 9, it says, Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. Now, this is not just a command here in this passage for only the behavior you have when you gather as a church. But this is a command for living life. Now, why would this be in here? Well, we know historically that Ephesus, uh, that the women of Ephesus were known to show off their wealth. One particular way they would do that was in their clothing. We know from history that women of Ephesus um, wore quite flashy clothing in some cases and um, would show their wealth by decorating most often their hair. And they would weave gold and pearls uh, within their hair, and that would show their status. And so uh, we have this 
issue that's happening in the church in Ephesus, and Paul is going to have to deal with it. So one of these problems is clearly um, that women should not flaunt their wealth, and not every woman in Ephesus, uh, just as the case today, would have been wealthy. And so this kind of flashiness was done on purpose by these women to show off their status in society. And not much has changed, has it? And yet the Scriptures calls us to be very careful with how we behave toward one another with regards to showing partiality based on an economic status. In James chapter 2, 1 through 4, we find this. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And so Paul is teaching here that there should not be an arrogance among women here, uh, which I have no doubt existed then, exists now, and obviously exists in men as well, and especially the wealthy, uh, they can tend to struggle toward that. We'll see more instruction for that in First Timothy chapter 5. Um, but nevertheless, he points out here that women can be sinful with the way they wear their clothing if it is an attempt to flaunt it against others who don't have as much uh, in an effort to be noticed. And Paul knew that this would not be a healthy way to stir up congregations uh, to good works. However, this was not the only issue, uh, and based on the text, uh, I think it is not the overwhelming issue as much as it was the immodesty of the apparel that they were wearing. And so what Paul is wanting to address to the women who are now believers is that how you dress reveals something about you. And Paul knew this, and he addresses it head on. Now, before you panic, this is not a call for people to pull out measuring sticks to measure dress lengths or to call people to only wear dresses or to call for wearing potato sacks to church. Um, but I can tell you, as a pastor, that I have counseled many men who have said something to this effect. The most difficult time I have with holding my eyes accountable, is at church. And I have sat in large churches and been on staff in some large churches where I was absolutely blown away by what women would wear to the church. This, after serving 13 years in student ministry... I had the same issue there. If I had a dollar for every conversation I had with a young student about what they were wearing, a female student, um, I would probably be retired now. And that generally goes back to parents who allow kids to walk out in things they should not wear. Do you see the, we're already getting uncomfortable, aren't we, in here? See, see it's already, wouldn't it be cooler just to have a really hip sermon about a new you or something like that? 
Well, I hope you do have a new you with how you dress. Listen, men, briefly, the most common way you hear this taught is that women should be careful what they wear because they can cause men to lust. I think that is true. But men, you are not off the hook. You are called to not lust despite what any woman would wear in front of you. You are called to look away. You are called to think about things that are good. And so, when you stand before the Lord to give an account of every word and thought, you will not be able to say, well, the only reason I thought that is because of what she was wearing. You are called to have a covenant with your eyes. Men can lust no matter what a woman wears. And they are not off the hook by any stretch on being accountable for that. But listen, women, we know how societies have worked, do we not? Women, please don't tell me you are blinded by the fact that bodies of women are used to sell everything from shampoo to hamburgers. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but women's bodies and hamburgers have nothing to do with one another. I have never seen a commercial that used a beautiful woman by displaying their personalities or their intelligence to show why you should purchase the product. But instead, it caters to the woman's body with the desire to be noticed to be paid attention to. And yet, the result of these standards and these methods that we have in our society and existed here, and we'll get into that in a bit, have always been deadly. A man who is visually driven and notices women's bodies around women who are craving attention is a bad, bad combination. And our society is bathed in this from the moment we wake up. From TV to social media to billboards to movies to books to magazines, it doesn't matter. And let's be honest, you could cut yourself off from every one of those things and maybe that is something you should do and maybe it's something we all should do, but you will not escape the world. It is in front of you all the time. And it has always been like this. Now, yes, I understand that even decades ago, um, there have been points throughout history where maybe shame and embarrassment existed with regards to some of this. And for that part, much of that has gone away. But we have, as we see in this chapter, there has always been issues with a modest dress. Time and time again in the New Testament alone, we are told by Paul and by Peter and by the other writers to flee sexual immorality. This is not a new problem. This was not created by rock and roll. This has existed since the beginning of depraved man that we are drawn to things that are sinful with our bodies. And women and teenage girls feel the weight of this pressure on how to look and how to 
dress. I have two sons and two daughters. And this issue affects all four of them equally. What kind of women do I want to raise? And what kind of women do I appoint my boys to marry? This is important. It's not a great sermon in the coolness and the hip, but it is crucial for the church to grasp that how we dress ourselves sends a message. This would have been felt by the women of Ephesus. The temple of Artemis was there, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. If you're not familiar with that, let me help you. We talked about this in the opening introduction of Timothy. Uh, but it was a localized goddess of the Ephesians. Um, she bore the same name uh, as Diana, as the goddess of Greek mythology, her temple um, was engaged in animal sacrifices, and there were many female priests. And in keeping with the fertility theme of which this local goddess was named, prostitution within the temple was rampant. This would have been the most um, noticeable landmark in Ephesus. It was a popular tourist attraction, if you could say so, in the Roman world. Women knew about this, and so did the men. And you can't, you can't sanitize the Bible as much as we would like to. You can't. And so you take these women who have grown up in this culture with a goddess of fertility over here in a huge temple that is a tourist attraction of which the priestess are involved in prostitution and you raise these women up in that culture and these women become believers in this church in Ephesus and you're going to have some issues that require some instruction. So these new believers, these new women, and this new thing called Christianity in a church started by Paul and now pastored by Timothy, smack dab in a city saturated with sensuality in a culture where women are looked as, ob as objects to be used, to be gloated over, but by and large not to be treasured or protected. Can you imagine the difficulty now of this command? For women who grew up seeing a certain way of dressing, for men who liked it, to come to faith in Christ and now suddenly struggle with this command. But Paul clearly commands believers, Christian women, to look different in their dress because of their faith in Christ. In verse 10 we see this, but with what is proper for women who dress modestly in respectable clothing for women who profess godliness. Do you see the distinction? Hey, you're a believer? Yes, I'm a believer in Christ. Then how you dress yourself matters. And it should set you apart in the culture that is driven by sensuality. 
And so I would ask, ladies, women, girls, do you profess godliness? Do you claim to be born again? Do you claim to be redeemed? Do you claim to have been rescued from the sinful nature and been made new? Yes. If you say, yes, I do, then how you dress matters. It's that simple. So what do we do with this? Paul says this. But, with, but dress yourself with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Women should be known for the godly things that you do, for the godly persona that you carry, not for what you wear. Good works. Don't wear all this other sensual clothing. Don't wear clothing that defines your economic status against those who don't have for the express purpose of drawing attention to yourself. But instead, rather be known in the church, be known in your community as women who have good works. That shouldn't be a new theme for just ladies. This is a theme throughout the entire New Testament. I'm going to run through these really quickly, just in case you think I'm lying to you. Are you ready? Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, says this, Let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says this, For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 10, which is interesting, this is the qualifications for a widow. So if you were a widow in biblical times and you needed help from the church, you had to meet, I know, are you ready? A standard. Something that's disappeared from local churches. And one of those standards is here, having a reputation for good works. First Timothy chapter 6 commands to the rich, for those who were wealthy in Ephesus. It doesn't say get rid of all your money, like the poverty gospel says. It doesn't say get lots more money, like the prosperity gospel says. Here's what it says to the rich. Paul addresses directly the wealthy, and he says they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Titus chapter 2, verse 7, it says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity and dignity. In Titus chapter 2, verse 14, it says this, he, Jesus, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Titus 3, verse 8. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. In Titus chapter 3, um, 
Verse 14, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. In Hebrews chapter 10, you have this, and let us, this is in the gathering of the church, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Are you seeing the theme here? You have been rescued from your old ways and have been made new to produce good works for your king. And that includes for these women in Ephesus the way they dress. Don't draw attention to your body. Don't draw attention to your wealth. Instead, instead, draw attention to Jesus by how you have lived your life. Be known for that. Do you know so-and-so? Yeah, she, she wears that short dress every other Sunday to church. Or do you know so-and-so? Yeah, I know her. Man, the thing she does for the king. See the difference? finally summed up again by Peter in his address to Christian women in 1 Peter chapter 3. He says it this way. Do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. No, no, no. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight It's very precious. I hope my daughters are listening. I know Lucas wants his daughter to listen. Trying to, we don't have all of our teenagers here today, so it's just y'all. Y'all are on the, y'all on the clock. You want to be a godly woman? Wear stuff that draws people's attention to your Savior. Not to your body. That will set you apart from the world. We often hear how the church needs godly men. And it most certainly does. And I do mean men. We need men. Not, I think as Matt Chandler says, boys who know how to shave. We need (laughs) men. Men who stand for things, who treasure their wives, who love their daughters, who, as in the case of my girls, and I hope will always be the case, when they go shopping, their first question to my wife is, will dad let me wear this? Because they know that more often than not, the answer is no. And it's not because I want to ruin their day. It's because I want them to understand what it means to be a godly woman. We need women who are godly. Who don't just profess Christ, but whose lives are devoted to Him in such a way that their reputation precedes them for God-honoring reasons. This world, churches, East Texas, needs godly women. Women like Esther. You remember when we preached through the book of Esther last year? We need women like Esther. Let me remind you of what kind of woman she was. Used by God to rescue the Jews from the hands of their enemies. 
I don't have near enough time to rehash Esther, but it's available online. <laughs> but let me just remind you of Esther. Chapter 4, 11 through 16, she said, this, this is how it goes for her. In verse 11, it says, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But here's Esther, knowing that her only chance to rescue the people of God is to go to the king. She says this, but as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape, she was Jewish too, you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise to the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Here's a godly woman. Are you ready for this? I mean, this, man, we just have, many of us have just gone to church too long. Like this stuff's just become like second nature. <laughs> Listen to this. Then Esther told them the reply to Mordecai. Go and gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. It's 2019, and we're talking about Esther. What kind of woman you should strive to be. If I perish, I perish. Where are those women? Are they in this room? Teenage girls, do you desire to be that kind of woman who would lay it all down to rescue your people? You want to make a difference in the world for the kingdom? You won't do it by wearing clothes or drawing everyone's attention to your body. But you can make a difference by drawing everyone's attention to the God you serve. Or how about a woman named Dorcas from Acts 9? Not on the top ten names to name your daughter today. She also goes by Tabitha. I would have stuck with that one. <laughs> but in Acts 9, we find this. This is Dorcas who is restored to life by Peter. It says this, and there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. Listen to what she's known for. She was full of good works and acts of charity. When she passed away at Joppa, the people grieved for her. And they called for Peter. And God, through Peter, raised her from the dead. She was known for good works and acts of charity. 
Proverbs 31, 10 through 31, our elder reading today. Verse 25 strikes me very profoundly. This woman, this, this godly woman, it says, strength and dignity are her clothing. That's what she's known for. You can be known for a lot of things as a woman. It can be for how you dress. It can be for how you flaunt your wealth. It can be how you talk. The language among young girls today blows me away. I have sat in restaurants behind college girls and heard them curse like something I had never heard, and I was a cop for crying out loud. You can be known for a lot of things, but here's the command of Scripture, ladies. Men, pay attention, because you have a responsibility to raise your daughters in this way, and you have a responsibility before the Lord to hold your wife accountable in this way. That's not popular today. But you will give an account for it, whether it's popular or not. But you can be known for a lot of things. But the Word of God calls women to be known for good works and to make a difference for the kingdom. Women, ladies, Girls, what do you want to be known for? What message do you want to send? When you get up in the morning and you put your clothes on, I have no desire to become legalistic and give you an attire that you should or should not wear. And here's what I've learned after 13 years of working with students and after having been a cop and dealt with prostitutes. Let me just help you out. You know what you're doing. No women said amen there. Women, you know what you're doing. When you get up in the morning, ask yourself, see, isn't this just not popular to teach? Man, what I wouldn't have given to come up with a different lesson today. It's not popular, but listen, it's, it's in the Bible. When you get up in the morning and you put your clothes on, ask yourself, what am I going to draw attention to today? What am I going to draw attention to today? I am a man. Shocking. (laughs) And I see women besides my wife. I do. Told this story many times. My wife's heard this story. I was walking to Walmart once. A woman that was dressed very inappropriately walked in front of me. I've told this to my boys and I've told it to other men. We're walking into the Walmart. She turns down aisle seven. I have a choice to make. Right, men? I can go down aisle seven. Or I can go a different direction. Because I love my wife, I go a different direction. Because I value her Above all the women, I go a different direction. 
men, that's how we respond. But women, don't be the girl on aisle seven. Don't be the girl on aisle seven. I rarely get to do this because I'm rarely finished this early. But I have this in my notes and I want to say it. Romans 12 says to give honor to those who deserve honor. I rarely ever get to talk about my wife from the pulpit, but I will today. Um, there are few women that I have been around in my life who exude this passage more than my wife does. I met her when she was 16 years old, fell in love with her instantly. Not really true because you don't really understand love at 16, amen? <laughs> as much as I knew it, I was in love. Not long after that, we were at a non-sanctioned church youth party. She was one of the few girls who did not have a two-piece on. Yeah, I went there. And my wife might tell you it's because she has never felt confident to wear something like that. I'm sure that's what my wife would tell you because I know her. She would always say that. Let me tell you there was something different about my wife. She didn't want to be known for that. And that was attractive. And if you get around people who know my wife, she is known for good works and acts of charity. <laughs> and somehow, I got to marry her. <laughs> and I have no concept. Keith's like, I don't know. Keith married us. And I'm sure Keith thought, she ain't showing up. <laughs> and when she did, they didn't think she would say I do, but she did. And we just celebrated 23 years of marriage to a woman who I hope my daughters become like. Women, you play a crucial role in our local church. And one of the quickest ways you do that is by what you're known for. What are you known for? And Paul tells his young pastor there, make sure your women are known for good works. Let us strive to be that kind of church. But that will never be possible for you if you do not know Jesus. The difference in my wife's life has been the gospel. And I want to present that to you again. That we were born into sin. No one had to teach you how to sin. You sin naturally, including things like wearing things that draw attention to your body. It's, it's natural. We are born sinners. Separated from God. Desiring to please ourselves. But in your sin, while you were sinning, God loved you. And He sent Christ to take your place on the cross. And for those who put their faith in Christ and repent of their sins, they are made new. And as Paul says in Romans, you once, once were a slave to sin, 
And now you're a slave to righteousness. Our master is now holiness. That's what we're called to. People say, how do I come to know Christ? Do what the Bible says repeatedly. You repent and you believe. And we'll know whether or not that's true by what God does in your life. So, may we be a church that is known for our women. Wouldn't that be good? I want to be a church known for our women. Because they're godly, full of good works, and acts of charity. And that is the most beautiful thing a woman can ever be like. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for teaching us your word this morning. God, I pray that I honored your word. I pray, Lord, that in a teaching like this, I'm quickly aware of how a woman could feel condemned. And God, I pray that condemnation would not be the result for those who are in Christ, but rather conviction. And God, I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would speak the words of the difference into our women's lives. God, I pray that we as a church would be known for our women. The fact that they are full of grace and joy and good works and acts of charity. God, may Sovereign Life Fellowship be known for that. And God, may our men be known as men who look at that as beauty and not what this world calls beauty. May we raise our daughters in such a way that they want to draw attention to nothing else but Christ and Christ crucified. And may our husbands lead in that effort. I pray, Lord, by teaching their children and holding their wives accountable. Pray, Lord. Pray, Lord, for those in here who do not know you. God, that your Holy Spirit would quicken them and would awaken their soul, would take the scales off their eyes, would open up their ears so they could hear, and they would profess you and be forever changed. I pray that happens as well, Lord. God, we love you. I pray, God, that we would submit to this teaching from your word. It's your name we pray. Amen. I'm going to worship a little bit. Pray if you need to. The elders are always here if you want to chat with someone. Let's just spend some time and worship this sovereign creator of the universe who loves us.